Hey, everybody. Welcome back to a new episode of Reppin. Uh, it's been a little while since we posted some new episodes, but I was busy with the end of the session. So uh, glad to be back working on the podcast. And today's guest is a great one. Uh, it's Chaz Sunny Chi Karman. He's the president of Ice the Beef New Haven and Waterbury. We had a really interesting conversation about the work that he's doing to try to bring hope and love into those communities and to try to do that in a way that can help make sure people understand that there is opportunity for them and that there are other alternatives to some of the lifestyles that uh, got him into trouble as a young man and get people into trouble too often. And I really enjoyed talking about this because I think that um, there's so much negativity every day in our world, whether it's online or whether it's in our daily lives, that we sometimes forget that love and hope are two things that no matter who you are or where you live um, can impact you and change your life and make a difference. And I think that um, what he's doing is incredible. I hope you learn about what he does and learn how you might be able to support his organization if you're willing to do that. Um, and so without further ado, here's our next guest, Chaz Sanichi Carmon. Welcome back, everybody. And my guest today is Chaz Sonny Chi Carmon, who is the president of Ice the Beef New Haven and Waterbury. Chaz, good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. So one of the reasons why I did this podcast, Chaz, is because I really wanted to introduce people to uh, some of the rising stars in our state, people who are doing important work that don't get the necessary attention that they deserve. And I think you are a really good example of that because I met you uh, a few weeks ago at an event about opioids and uh, I heard you speak and I, I looked you up to be honest with you. And I looked about the work you're doing and I was blown away by how important that work is, but I'd never heard about that. And I felt bad about that. And one of the things that I, I want to do is I want to get into what you do now, but I want to go back in time a little bit and talk about your life. So you grew up here in New Haven? Yes, I uh, grew up in New Haven, born and raised um, in inner city, uh, moved around a lot due to emergency housing and uh, the era of the 80s, how families were in our city. And I ended up moving to every neighborhood pretty much and, and living in every neighborhood and actually playing with the toughest kids growing up. So as I got older, I knew everybody, right? Um, because I was a little wild kid myself. Um, and <laughs> I got to experience just meeting everybody in every neighborhood, understanding what kind of life they live. And I kind of ended up living in the projects, um, in the Foot Street Projects and in uh, West Hills and uh, started growing up from there around again, another understanding. So uh, I grew up, uh, my family's originally from New Haven, but I grew up in Guilford. And at a time when we were kind of growing up together in the 80s and 90s, New Haven was a very different city than it was today. Talk a little bit about what that was like for you uh, moving around a lot in those different neighborhoods. What, what was the, the difference between today and then in New Haven? Well, the main difference was in neighborhoods, it was that, you know, uh, there was more of a village mentality, more of a communal uh, mentality, whereas, you know, you couldn't, uh, you know, you knew everybody in the neighborhood, you know, you knew everybody in the projects and, and, and uh, you weren't able to uh, disrespect uh, community members, right? Uh, Miss Millie knew you down the street and they knew your mom and Miss Millie could tell you to sit down and stop, right? Um, and you had to respect that. Um, you didn't want them to call your parents because you know, it was a communal family thing. Um, we don't have that now. And it's not just in New Haven. This is across the country, right? Where uh, 
young uh, kid can um, disrespect an adult um, in the neighborhood. And that's just that, you know, you couldn't do that back in the day. So what was really changed in our, our community is that we don't have that village mentality anymore. And we, and that's we, one thing we do in Ice to Beef, we fight to bring that back through a lot of neighborhood cohesion. I know it's probably a lot of different things that have caused that to go away, but are there two or three things that you could point to right away that you think have had the biggest impact on, on that going away? Well, one is um, systematic, you know, uh, we talk about systematic racism and we talk about Jim Crow laws and these, these kind of concepts uh, originally were created to destroy um, the black and brown communities. Right. Um, and that is still uh, dwindling in our neighborhoods. Um, the second thing I think was major was the drug epidemic. Um, that was a major thing that changed the communities um, around the country and black and brown communities. So I, I think those two for me uh, are, are major uh, dents that uh, change the village mentality of um, black and brown people in New Haven. Is it possible to get it back? Definitely, definitely. It's all a mindset thing. So it's in, it's in your mind. Right, you have to get to the point where um, you want to be friends with your neighbor. You want to help your neighbor. You want to love your neighbor. We, we have to get to the point where um, if your neighbor doesn't have food, you should be able to go next door and, and, and get some to eat. You know, um, it is, we are able to bring this back, but how to bring that back, we have to create spaces that are communal like that, spaces that create that. Um, we have a lot of younger parents, right, who maybe have experienced those days of, of what a village looks like. We have to retrain our parents also on how to teach kids. Um, these kids are different in, in, in this time um, uh, through technology and et cetera. Um, so it has to be a new stance, like teaching social emotional learning in the home, mm. right? Teaching parents how to do trauma, uh, how, how to attack trauma in your own home. It could be not due to what you've done, but it could be due to your surrounding environment. Um, how we teach restorative practices in the home. How do you build a relationship with your teenager who may be having issues in the community? How do you understand that we have trauma and how you deal with that? You know, so there are so many ways to bring back the neighborhoods uh, and bring back those mentality, but it first has to be a mindset change in these poverty stricken neighborhoods that we can come together, we can help each other, we can love each other. And that's not just in poverty stricken neighborhoods or inner city. We're talking about any neighborhood in America. Every yeah. neighborhood had a village. They may not call it a village mentality, but that's what you had. You know, everybody on the, on the block knew everybody, no matter what era you came from uh, un, un, under the uh, 90s. You know, um, so we got to get that back in every neighborhood in America, you know, whether it's affluent or not. Uh, even affluent communities, they don't, every neighborhood don't know each other. It's more yeah. of a, we in America, mind your business, right? You don't know them yeah. over here, that's it, you know? Right. Um, we have to bring that back in every neighborhood. Yeah. Um, I want to go on a tangent for a second, because about something you said, we'll get back to your life and, and certainly your work in a second. But you talked about social and emotional learning. You talked about trauma. I spent a lot of time working on mental health, as I think, you know, and one of the things that strikes me is just how stigmatized that is. Right. And I think it's stigmatized everywhere, but I think it's definitely stigmatized more in the African-American and Latino community. Um, and I'm wondering if you through your work, especially dealing with violence, right, which is something that causes so much trauma, and specifically working with young people, if you can talk a little bit about why that is, uh, and, and how we can break that cycle of stigma, right? Because 
sometimes it's easy to say, well, if we just put more money into it, or if we just did that, but that doesn't necessarily work because as you said, it's a systemic, systemic problem. Um, how can we make that better? Well, um, you know, one thing we do at Nice to Beep is that we I, I have our staff be trained in social emotional learning and restorative practices, right? Um, and understanding that people in inner city are born into PTSD. PTSD. Yeah. They're born into PTSD automatically. You might not think you have it, but you have it, right? Um, so being born in these environments, automatically from birth, you are affected by trauma, right? So like I said, again, start, we, our organization is starting to go out and, and through our uh, work in the community, we're using social emotional learning and restorative practices. And we need to start teaching our communities that you can do these kind of things in your home. It's a mindset change, but there's, these things are new. So they have to be taught on what that is. How does that look? How do you do it? Right? So, because mental health is prevalent, especially through COVID, we all been affected. Now we all got yeah. PTSD, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. COVID came, you know? Um, so being born in these kind of things, we have to start to deal with these traumas, deal with the things that causes us to get to this point. And I think, I, I believe, and what we're doing at Ice to Beef is through social emotional learning, um, is starting to understand more traumas and start to attack the traumas. And do you think if we do that, especially for young men, we can change this narrative that it's, you know, you're somehow less than because you talk about your emotions or you're somehow, uh, you know, uh, not a man if you can't, uh, you know, talk about this stuff. Do you think that over time that will make a difference with that? Well, you know, I, I do have a lot of men in our org. We have women and men in our org. Um, and our, our men and our reach team is about almost 10 guys. And they talk about love all the time. Yeah. They talk about their emotions all the time. I believe you heard Brother Remedy speak. And we, we push in love and village, right? So if you can start teaching the men to talk about this, it's okay to cry. It's okay to say you love somebody. Uh, one of our programs we have is called Knights of Justice. And, and, and why are we using the image of a knight? Because a knight is a warrior. He is powerful. He is tough. But when there's no war, he's a gentleman. And he can open a door for a lady. And he can act accordingly like a gentleman. But you're still a warrior. So sometimes we yeah. feel like if you're a warrior, you can't be what some would say soft, right? You yeah. can't show tears. You can, you're only a warrior. No, you can be a knight. You can be a warrior. And at the same time, you can show chivalry and be a gentleman all the same. So yeah. it's, all, it's, it's a mindset change of individuals, right? Teaching them that you can be a knight and you can be powerful and can be loving at the same time. But you mm. got to witness people like that. Yeah. Right? So our men, we are, we are expressing this. I love you just because I love you. Yeah. I know you to love you. I'm just loving you because you're a human being. And our men are, are, are pushing that and teaching that. And not only, not only that changed the kids, it changes them, you know, as a man. When another man tells you he loves you, like, what? Excuse me? Yeah. You know, no one tells a man they, they love him, but their yeah. children or maybe their wife, right? But for another man to tell a man, you know, I love you just because, you know, I love you. There's no reason for it. It yeah. amazes you. And to start people having this conversation that love is the key to changing all this. If we all love each other, none of this stuff be happening. Yeah. So you start teaching that love. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so let's go back in time a little bit. Let's, let's go back to, um, to, to you and your story. 
you know, my grandparent, my grandfather's a firefighter in New Haven. They lived in Westville. My grandfather saved up a bunch of money and they eventually, you know, lived that American dream, quote unquote, American dream where they moved out of New Haven and bought a house in the suburbs. But for our parents' generation, that was not really possible, right? Because that, that was an idea that sounded good on paper, but wasn't always possible for different reasons, economic, uh, racism, uh, all the different factors that go into it. But I was struck by reading something about you that you had a mom and a stepdad that were both working parents, and yet they couldn't find a way to add up at the end of the day. There was just, it wasn't coming in and you made a choice. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that choice that you made uh, and the path that you went down a little bit and then what got you out of that path. Well, well, firstly, you know, I, I you know, my mom wasn't really working. Um, uh, my stepfather came in and kind of uh, started to uh, pick up some of the pieces. I never had my real father in my life, you know, so there was already trauma there already. Um, the stepfather came in, he um, started to pick up the pieces uh, on these young men that are in the house that this is how you act. It's what you're supposed to do. This, this is you're supposed to work, you're supposed to, you know, he started to pick those pieces up. Um, so uh, uh, we don't have, you know, when, when you come in from a certain neighborhood and it doesn't have hope, you don't see a future of buying a home, you know? Uh, a yeah, lot of yeah. these communities have been redlined, right? Yeah. Which means even if you were able to get the money up, the bank still wouldn't give you the rest. Yeah. So that totally, you know, now I, I go to the bank and I give me anything. Talking about the 80s, you know, the, you couldn't just get a loan, right? Even if you had X amount of dollars um, because of your skin color, because of a neighbor you're coming in. You know, these communities have been redlined that are poverty stricken. So the people in the community do not have the money to buy them. And then you outsource it to different other communities. And then we see the rise in slumlords, right? Because you don't live there. So you don't care about that neighborhood. Yeah. When you're able to own in your neighborhood, when you own your own home, it's your home. So you're going to want to clean up outside. You want it to look nice. You want it, you're vested in it, right? So bringing that, you know, redlining those communities took away the opportunity for people to buy in their neighborhoods, right? And took away the opportunity for that hope that you could become a homeowner in your community and have and care about your neighborhood took that away because all you can do is rent, you know? Um, so that was major uh, to that is the red line of communities and not and making it so that black and brown people could not buy in their neighborhood. And it's not yours. You live it, but it ain't yours. How much does the lack of opportunity <clears throat> in your mind contribute to people not necessarily consciously making bad choices or just having bad choices foisted upon them? I mean, like how, how big of a factor is that in the neighborhood that you grew up in, the neighborhood that you're working in right now? It seems like it's a pretty significant issue. Well, I mean, as for any neighborhood, if you feel like there is no hope, you feel like there's no way to, to make money, there's no way to buy things, there's no way to eat, or pay bills, once the hope is gone, you have to now go into fight mode, right? You can't do flight because there's no way to get out. Yeah. But you go into fight mode. I have to figure out how to put food on the table. I have to figure out how this light bill is gonna get paid. And if I have no hope and we have conglomerates that are billionaires in our city, and at a time in those days where they weren't hiring and the people from the neighborhoods at $20 an hour, good jobs with benefits. Um, now 
you have to figure it out. So we see the rise in drug dealers. We see yeah. the rise in crime. We see the rise in robberies. We see the rise in, you know, all these things because people need to get the money because the money gives you the things you need for your family or gives you the things you need for yourself. So um, a lot of times it's not getting extra money. It's just getting some of it. And you have to resort to something. If you're a good father and you have a family and you can't get a job and you don't have a record, none of that stuff, and you're just a good person trying to get a job and it's not happening, you have to feed your family. You have to resort to something. So when you're in a neighborhood that does not have hope, that does not have jobs in the city, that does not, you have to resort to something. And, and, and most of the time, that something is not positive. Mm. So hope and opportunity is key to any community, no matter if you're affluent or not. If you're an affluent community and all, all the jobs leave, you know, like in the days when all, all the manufacturer jobs left, that community's going to go down now yeah. because manufacturers are gone. So right. where are we working at now? We have to pick up our stuff and get out of here or figure something out. So, you know, New Haven had a bunch of, you know, Winchester and, and there's so many uh, different manufacturing companies in the 60s, 70s, you know, in the 80s. And then they started to disappear. Right. So Detroit. Right. Think about Detroit. You know, all the manufacturing co companies closed down. What happens? Blight. <laughs> right. Because now there's no money. There's no opportunity. So when that leaves a community, now you have no hope and you got to figure out how am I going to make it happen? How am I going to feed my family? You know, and there was times when you, you couldn't go get the food stamps because if you had a man in the house, they wasn't mm. giving you the food stamps. So now yeah. you, the man has to leave for the kids to eat. Mm. Right. So now you're breaking up the family. So when you're in neighborhoods of any caliber that have no hope and no opportunity, that community is going to falter. That community is going to be destroyed now. And mining, mining in places. Once they close that mine, that mine is over. How are mm. we going to eat now? The mine's closed. So when these things happen in neighborhoods and communities and the opportunities leave or they don't have them at all, you have to resort to negative things. You can't just pack up and leave because there's no money because they're closed. Yeah. So opportunity and hope is super important to having a safe community, to having a thriving community, a thriving city. If you don't have any opportunity or hope, it's over. So we got a few minutes left and I want to make sure we talk about Ice the Beef. So, so tell, tell the listeners, if you had to describe Ice the Beef, I know it's hard to do. <laughs> what, what, how would you say uh, Ice the Beef works? What's the mission of Ice the Beef? So it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about our children's future. How do you change systematic racism? How do you change racism altogether? How do you change gun violence? How do you change police brutality? I figured it out. And the key is to teach the younger generation that you have a choice to make. When you shoot somebody, decision. When police brutality happens, somebody made a decision. Even to be a racist, right? You may have grown up in that home, but at some point, you have a decision to choose not to be. Yeah. So God gave us free will. So you have a decision to make. A lot of these things that happen are decisions that people are making. So what we try to do is foster positive decision-making through teenagers, through young adults, through kids. How do we teach you that your voice does matter? Your decision does matter. You can not shoot somebody because you can choose not to. It's that simple, you know, but we have to foster that. So in Ice to Beef, we attack gun violence through many realms, right? Through jobs. We had vouchers on jobs. 
we march for uh, gun violence. We we have about six programs going on in the city. We would be working with another program now, our first program in Waterbury. We're about to bring like four or five more programs in Waterbury now, right? Um, and, and we start to foster that. Conf conflict management, anger management, what we call five R's that we work with nice to be, social emotional learning, teaching the youth these things and fueling them with these things and mainly your decision is that important. It can affect the entire world if you uh, go into a school and kill everybody. So he chose that, right? So if we can foster your decision-making and have you choosing wisely and understanding that that decision does matter, it affects everybody in the country. It affects everybody in the neighborhood. It affects your entire family, right? By you making a decision to do something positive with your life. So in a nutshell, Ice to Beef, we, we are anti-gun violence organization. We're in two cities and we focus on awareness, but we really focus on working with teenagers working with the young adults. Teenagers get lost in the shuffle. There's a lot of stuff for little kids, adolescents, toddlers. And then when you get to your teenage years, it's like, where's everything at? You know, and that's so important is to get the teenagers on the right path because they're about to inherit the jobs, inherit yeah. the nation, inherit the city. And if they're not ready and they don't understand that choosing this decision can affect all of us, then we're not doing our job. But in Ice to Beef, we really, really work on that. We really, really work with these kids to say, you know, not only does your decision matter, but they, they make their own community events. They do their own organizing. They do interviews. We have 36 staff now, and they all have been interviewed by teenagers, right? So you know how to have an interview. You know how to sit in an interview. You know how to go into an interview because you've conducted them and hired people, right? This showing that your decision-making truly is effective having your own community events and, and, and when it's done, you gave away 500 backpacks and help families. You just did that. You chose to do this. And this relates to organizing, going to class. If you can organize an event, you can organize yourself going to class, you know? So we're, we're teaching this decision-making process. How do you choose the right decision? How do you continue choosing that as you start to get older? If you're never taught this, that you're just picking whatever you want to pick in the moment, in the emotional heat of the moment. But if you understand that, you can step back for a second, think about what this decision is and choose the best for your life or for your community or your people. It makes so much uh, of a difference. But if we're not teaching that in these programs that we have, we need to start younger. If you have a daycare, you should be teaching positive decision-making strategies. How do you choose to do the right thing and, and go over and, have, and, go over here and, and uh, do this work or whatever, create something that they have to make choices that are right. And then that gets them on the right path. And by the time they get to high school years, they're understanding that I can choose the right thing. And I can choose to be a leader. And I can choose myself without following this crowd because I know my decision matters. I know I'm important enough to, my voice is important enough to choose the decision. And it's a good thing. So really we work with the younger generation to get them on the right path with a bunch of awareness events. We, we now have a director of domestic violence prevention. We're going into that realm. We partner with uh, Brian Cody, Brothers of the Foundation, who are our family, and we're attacking opiate addiction, right, in, in different cities. And we're focusing on gun violence, right? But truly, kids, teenagers, young adults, how do we get you on the right path of choosing the right thing to do? And once you make them choices, and you see that, wow, I made a good choice, and look what I did. They continue to make these good choices. You know, um, and that's what we have to foster. No bullying, right? Because that can send a, a kid into a wrong direction. But if everybody's learning in high school how to make positive decisions, then we're not bullying because that's not a good decision to make. 
right? So fostering that idea of this future generation will make change in, in all aspects. So one thing that you keep talking about um, is hope and love, right? Is hope and love seems to drive not only the work that you do, but that's where you come from in your heart and in your head and, and where you want these young men and women to, to be. Um, that seems daunting. <laughs> like, you know, sometimes when I think about laws that I'm doing or, or policies, right? Um, I came into this business because I wanted to help people. And I'm sure the same is true for you. Um, but we're only one man, right? And one person. And, and you have a broad reach of people and you have a big team. But how, how can we make that narrative of love and hope bigger, right? Is that government? Is it education? Is it community? Is it everybody together? And if it is everybody together, how can we get everybody on the same page? Because whether you are watching the news, whether you're on Facebook, whatever, there's so much negativity, hatred every day that we see, especially young people. And I just am so struck by this idea that maybe it's so simple as if we just talked about hope and love more, we could start to change that narrative. And I, I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit. And you're exactly right. We need to create loving spaces. We need to start talking about this more in these different places on social media. It's okay to love your neighbor and love your family and love your friends and it's okay, right? And we have to start to teach that um, to everybody. See, if I have 36 staff members, you gotta understand, you know, when you're working with young adults and teenagers, you know, your real job is to save one. You save one, you've done your job. Of course, you wanna save everybody. But if you can save one and that one has changed their life, you've done your job. Now imagine, I have 36 people. If we all save one, yeah. we just save 36 people. Yeah. Right? So you don't have to focus on saving 100. You can focus on saving the one, working through the 10. But I guarantee you, as you save this one and get the one to turn, the other friends will start to turn. And then next thing you know, you save six and seven. And then you save all 10. You know? And you're like, wow, I save, I got all 10 of these young men to start thinking right, to start going to class right, to on their way to college or wherever they want to go after high school, but it's positive. I did that. And that's the light bulb for you. You know, and as you save the one, you get better at saving three and four, right? But you gotta say try to save at least one, you know, and, and and then the numbers add up as you have multiple people trying to save the one. And then when you save in the five, it, it it's even better. But really we have to start having more spaces of love and understanding. We don't have those on social media like that. Mm. We need to create those kind of spaces where, you know, it's, it's okay to love each other. It's okay to be nice to each other. It's okay to help somebody, you know, it's okay to give up your seat for a lady or open a door for an elder. You know, those things are kind of gone. The morality, the morals, those kind of values that were taught when you were in the sixties and seventies, you know, that's not around like that anymore. So bringing that stuff back, right? So that way that we can foster that love. But we have to start talking about it. It's okay to talk about, you know, you, you love everybody in your neighborhood, even if you don't know them, you know? But you got to start to talk about it. You got to start to bring it to the forefront. And we need more spaces like that. We need more communities doing that. Um, we're in two cities now, and we're coming up there as some strong men and women, but we're coming up there with love. We're coming there preaching love talking about teaching love, talking about love and talking about hope and talking about being together and 
and I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna leave you. You know, youth services is really tough because once about once, once three o'clock come at school, it's time to go home. I don't mm. know you anymore. After school programs when they're over, I don't know you anymore. But what we do is, I always say youth services is not a nine to five job. It's a twenty four seven thing. And yeah. three o'clock in the morning, we are getting up, going out to get those oh, wow. kids. You know, anything you need, we're gonna be there. We're on call twenty four seven. Everybody in Oregon. So if people want to support your mission of expanding that love and hope, how, how can they do that? Um, uh, easiest way to stay up to date is go on Facebook and join Ice the Beef or Ice the Beef Youth. Join two, one of the, two of those pages. On those pages, you can find avenues to reach out to us there. Um, you can stay up to date on the multiple. We put almost about seven, <laughs> five events out a month at times. Um, so we do a lot of stuff, but you'll be able to see everything we do. Uh, ice to beef and ice to beef youth on Facebook. Um, join us there. Reach out. Uh, we're looking for more people to join or want to start one in Bridgeport. Want to start one in Hartford. Um, just reach out and get involved. You know, um, but that's the easy way to get in contact with us. Our number is there. I also put my number here: two zero three eight five zero four eight four seven. That's two zero three eight five zero four eight four seven. You can reach out and we'll talk to you then. Um, other than that, go on Facebook and reach out to us, join in on the calls and we will come. Chaz, we didn't even get into your acting career. So we got to have you back on, uh, to talk about that because that's a, that's an interesting story. And, uh, we just want to thank you for being on the show today and for talking about the work you do. Uh, and if I can help you in that work, I hope you will let me know because it's so important and we have to do more to lead with love. And I know you. Um, are, are doing amazing work and just so blessed that you made some time out of your busy schedule to join us today and tell us about it. Well, thank you so much. And I want to thank you. And I also want to say, I love you, Sean. And I want to say that you keep doing what you are doing because, you know, we have to have people with love in their heart at the top and in places that can make change happen for everybody. So what you are doing, you continue to do what you do and be what you do. And I love you. And I want to thank you for being who you are and what you're doing. You know, because that that makes a big difference, you know, when you are uh, who you are. Well, I love you, too, man. And thanks again for coming on and look forward to working with you again soon. All right. Thank you. God bless. Mm -hmm.